0: <laughs> this is uh, this is usually Rabbi Linder's side. So now oh, yeah. you've become me, we which is start. actually no. It's perfect. Okay. It's perfect because um, Sam is our religion and culture vice president of our city board, and I was the religious and culture vice president of my youth group, which was called Belly Beth Elohim Local Youth <laughs> <laughs> Board. So it's just, you're just, yeah, it's good. Um, you're just filling the role, perhaps, of a future rabbi, although as you can see, any of these teens could be future rabbis. And some of them are trying to convince me to do it right now, but I, it's not going to happen. <laughs> so um, it's going to be an extra special Devar Torah this evening because I'm going to be joined by Sam in my teaching. And after you hear these words of Torah he has to offer, um, you'll just want to put him in charge from now on, which is good. So our portion this week, Shmini, why why are we laughing? You're going to make him in charge. (laughs) Our portion this week, Shmini, contains within it laws of keeping kosher, which Sam is going to interpret for us. One of the most famous one-liners about kashrut, about the laws of kosher, though it doesn't actually appear here in Leviticus, kind of perfectly encapsulates the message that Sam has to offer about interpretation and cultural change. Thou shalt not cook a calf in its mother's milk. Have you heard that one? You have, have you heard that one? Yeah. So it appears three times in the Torah, twice in Exodus and once in Deuteronomy. Now our portion here in Leviticus is much more focused on specifying which animals of all the different places, the air, the sea, the land are appropriate to eat. So before Sam turns our discussion to crustaceans and cloven hooves, I have a story. So God is speaking with Moses, revealing the entirety of the Torah to him to share with the Israelite people. And God says, thou shalt not cook a calf in its mother's milk. Ah, Moses says, I see what you mean, God. We should never have meat and dairy together at all. Thou shalt not cook a calf in its mother's milk says God. Oh, oh, now I see. I see, Moses responds. We should have two different sets of dishes and cookware and different stoves and washing mechanisms anytime we want to cook meat or dairy. Thou shalt not cook a calf in its mother's milk, says God. Ah, Moses continues. Of course, God, of course. We should wait six hours between when we've eaten meat and when we then eat dairy. And if I really understand what you're saying, you also mean that if I use a knife that I've designated to be for meat on an onion that I'm putting in a salad, while the onion, it's very spicy, it's like a cooked food, it will mean the whole salad, once I put cheese on it, is no longer kosher. (laughs) That's what you mean, is it not? And God says, that's not what I said. (laughs) So as humorous as this is, this interpretive development of thou shalt not cook a calf in its mother's milk, it speaks to the deep-seated need within Judaism to, as rabbi, and this is an amazing name, I wish it were my name, Rabbi Ben Bagbag. (laughs) It's a good one. Rabbi Ben Bagbag, who says in Pirkei Avot, turn it and turn it, for everything is in it. To try to seek out the meaning behind our sacred texts and their assertions and prohibitions in turn. So Sam has a few words to share about how that process goes about. Choose a mic, whichever Yeah,
1: yeah. The Jewish people have been around a long time. We have lived through massive changes in technology and society, managing to survive through thick and thin, abundance and sparseness. The Torah, our most cherished teacher, is a story of our past, present, and future. It helps us understand the conflicts we encounter daily that interrupt our day and the rare life-altering catastrophes which reshape who we are as a people. But despite these changes, the Torah remains the same, solidifying the fundamental and crucial texts of our people. The Torah survives because we as a people make new interpretations of a timeless story. Our parshat this week gives us the dietary restrictions of kashrut, one being that we may only eat hoofed animals and that chew their cud. What does this have anything to do with anything, you may ask?
0: What does this have anything to do with anything? I should have been a part.
1: <laughs> as someone who took high school biology, I can tell you that animals which do not chew their cud only eat Hard to digest foods like grass and other plants. I know what you're thinking. Sam, this isn't bioclass. What does this have anything to do with being Jewish? In short, all animals that chew their cud are also vegans. The laws of kashrut create a diet that consists of only plant eaters. Thus, we are directly putting ourselves lower on the food chain. This is significant because being lower on the food chain results in having a more abundant supply of cleaner food. This is the exact reason why my bio teacher has been vegan for the past uh, 30 some odd years. And pigs are unkosher because they do not chew their cud. They're omnivores and thus uh, violate this reasoning. This specific law, the one prohibiting the consumption of animals which do not chew their cud, has has personal and environmental benefits. And the law prohibiting certain sea life has a similar scientific reasoning. And so does the law prohibiting birds which, by the way, only prohibited meat-eating birds. My point being, the laws of the Torah are not arbitrary. The Torah was created with the elasticity as to be interpreted in any technological age, but still rigid enough in tradition to not lose its deep roots in logic and reasoning. Nothing in the Torah is arbitrary or pointless because it can, can and needs to be reinterpreted with new eyes every day. The Jewish story is a story of adaptation and interpretation. It has shown us in to- shown us time and time again that our ancient texts and our ancient custom of questioning has led to modern interpretations and opinions. There is speculation that the laws of kashrut distinguish ourselves from non-Jewish people or show religious obedience or regulate indulgence and greed, or is it a predecessor to medicine, hygiene, and health? To me, the laws of kashrut are an early form of dieting and health. As the Torah has shown us before, Personal care is a vital part of being Jewish and a member of the planet.
0: So, yeah, I know. Our tradition teaches that um, when two people study Torah together, as Sam and I did, the Shekhinah, which is God's divine presence, rests between them. So when we learn with others or prepare sermons with others, new insights emerge. And just as Sam has helped us ask questions, about where the laws of kashrut come from, and how they might be relevant to us today, he also helped me asking my own questions about the broader scope of this portion. The kosher laws are one of two very big thematic moments in Shmini. We also read, this week, the story of the deaths of two of Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu when they bring what is called an ishzarah, a strange fire, to the tent of meeting and God consumes them with it. Classically interpreted, this moment in the text is a painful and striking example of the Torah's punishing God, who will permit no alteration from ritual prescriptions. But I wonder, in light of Sam's understanding of how we and text change with time, that we might see this moment differently. We might instead see it as an invitation to engage, as Sam has, in the process of change. The strange fire of one generation, which seems dangerous and all-consuming, may indeed be the sacred offering of another. And there is still a certainty and a fixedness to what the Torah is. While we don't want to interpret or modernize ourselves out of existence, I think we can, as Sam has so beautifully modeled, learn the meaning behind our texts, learn our own priorities and values, and bring the two together in harmony. Fire, as we know, can cleanse and it can destroy. It can provide warmth and light and it can burn. This Shabbat, inspired by the offerings of our congregation's amazing teen leaders, the meanings that speak to their generation, I hope we will consider what offerings each of us can bring to the living and evolving project that is Judaism. May the passions that ignite us bring us new ways to find closeness with our tradition. And may we see that change No matter what form it takes, new food practices, new offerings, new experiences or jobs, opportunities, losses, and successes, may we see those changes not for their strangeness or their power to harm, but for their warmth and their light and their potential for blessing.